Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. I would be vamping for our hungry audiences. You said <laughs> elaborate mm. on that. No, but I will say <laughs> I I I. I, I uh, I would be surprised if one of us doesn't run over the other in our intro uh, quotes. There's one that just was a fucking heater in this movie. Um, but before we get there, I should welcome everybody and thank you very much for listening to Try Love. It's a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw, people we met at the Trial and Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Trial Love Podcast. You can find the Trial on at Trial and Cinema and at trialon.org. Get tickets to movies like the one we're about to talk about and many, many, many more at trialon.org. My name is Jason Daphnis. A bit of a freak, but quite likable. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Oversexed and overpaid, I is. I'm Cody Narvison, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Thank you, ladies. Take afternoon juice. Rented leotards are to be returned at the end of the podcast. I'm Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at PunishTake. See, I thought that was going to be a layup because it was just the I'm blank format. I'm stuck in the past. I think y'all oh, have shit. really evolved Sorry, past. Cody. Uh, we don't. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. It is a really good line. I was. He's always got a backup. A lot of really good, unsubtle sort of like uh, making fun of the intellectual class in this movie, and that that line was one in particular. It's like, ah, yes, afternoon juice following our <laughs> yoga appointment. <laughs> Tree. Uh, you will uh, find out more about this movie on trilon.org uh, where you can get tickets to movies uh, in part of this series, Peter Weir series, just called Peter Weir. Um, you can find a past log of everything that they've shown there. Check out the movies that uh, Peter Weir has directed. I think a lot of them are streaming on the Criterion channel. A lot of them are pretty commercially available. Check it out. Uh, and I'll leave a link in the show notes where possible to versions of the quote unquote versions of this movie that you can watch online um, without credit card information uh, or in commercial interruptions um just uh, it's a lot know. of air quotations for a, i was gonna say, uh, say for an audio podcast <laughs> they can't I, see you the, a lot of scare quotes in that dear listener so um read between the lines if you will speaking of speaking of scaring i'm gonna do my best uh terrible impression of mr grossman i uh, he is unable to join us for this episode camping or something like that yeah he's but, camping uh, but we'll, like a real I, I, working I, man he hates it so much I have put together a quick summary of what this movie is called, uh, or excuse me, what this movie is about. Um, we have, uh, I, I, I'm not going to like reveal what the movie's title title is until um, after uh, we have this the post. This is such a good episode. bit. This is our best. I know. I've, I've really, really in the really running lost. for our best bit. <laughs> I, we, we were trying for 2023. Uh, you're listening to the patented Aaron Grossman summary. Yes, indeed, folks. The Plumber is a 1979 thriller comedy written and directed by Peter Weir, starring Ivar Kantz. Uh, Judy Morris and Robert Colby, Jill and Brian Cowper are a couple living on campus in Adelaide, Australia, where Brian works in anthropology. One day, Max, a man claiming to be the university plumber, arrives at the Cowper's apartment despite not being called. Max goes on to wage a war of psychological terror on Brian, or excuse me, on Jill while Brian pursues his career aspirations at the university, weaving an odd, perverted web of lies and intimidation in, around Jill in her own home. The plumber was filmed on 16 millimeter for, te excuse me, for television per, uh, distribution. 
and though it's well considered, uh, excuse me, though it's not as well considered as a lot of the rest of Peter Weir's uh, filmography, or at least not as well remembered, uh, it is uh, it has gone down uh, in history as a testament to. Peter Weir's genre subverting and genre blending skill. Um, I actually, I borrowed because I threw together that summary very quickly before the podcast started. Uh, I borrowed that phrase, a uh, war of psychological terror from our own Harry Mackin, who, uh, who described some of Max's wow. actions in this movie that way. Uh, and it, well, I could not have said it better myself. I was trying to come up with an I mean, alternative he like, phrasing. He's like on some fucking CIA shit in this movie. Like he is really like systematically isolating and gaslighting this poor woman into it happens oblivion. Very, very quickly. But I wanted to borrow that phrase so that I could toss to you for how this movie went down. The vibe of it overall, I found myself surprised. I just wanted to get a temp check from you on it. Yeah. So here's a weird background. Um, I have been looking forward to watching this movie for a very long time because uh, in my former life, my first job out of college or my first full-time job, um, I was a uh, blog writer for um, a digital marketing agency that was mostly um, doing home services uh, clients. So like plumbing and pest control. Bugs so, and it, plugs, I think plug, they called it. Yeah, right. Exactly. I think that was the name of the agency at, at one point. It's since changed its name. Um, but that means that I, I ended up doing, I think at, at my um, highest capacity, something around 12 to 20 blogs on plumbing per week uh, for a while there. Um, I had to do, a, I've had to find a lot of different uh, subject matter to do that. Um, so I wrote a couple of different um blogs about great depictions of plumbing in media. Um, and that's where I first encountered this movie as Wait, like, for real. Yeah. As one of the sort <laughs> of great, you know, I mean, I, I literally Googled like, like plumbers in movies and the plumber was the first one that came up and it was like, there it is. Like, and it was a fantastic and it was kind of weird to write about at the time because it was like, Hey, how do I talk about this? Like actually very trenchant analysis of the intersections of uh, like, gender politics and uh, class politics in a way that's not going to alienate my audience. Um, I don't know if I succeeded there, but uh, here's a transition. I think this movie is extremely successful, especially um, I think the first thing that struck me about it. And like, this is going to make me sound like a real, like fucking like old man yelling at the cloud, but like imagine a world uh, where um, you can make a movie like this for fucking television. And like, it is, actually looked forward to and people are interested in it and they talk about it and the television network is happy to put it on and it like is somewhat prestigious and well-remembered and sought after. I That's literally unfathomable to me in today's media environment. Like I don't think that anybody could make a movie like this period anymore because it wouldn't be profitable because it wouldn't stream because it wouldn't do well in like theaters, uh, much less television where all of that stuff is magnified like a hundred percent, right? Like if you want anything to go on television, it has to be like focus tested out like to shit because, and also just like legitimately not to be again, old man yelling at a cloud, but like, I really can't imagine that modern audiences would be interested in something like this. Like, it's like, Hey, it's this sort of weird psychological thriller drama about class and, uh, gender roles and sort of like, it's about one woman's sort of like very sympathetic, but also sad, like descent into being a worse person than she thinks she's going to be. And like, it's like, I don't know, man, like I, I was so impressed by this movie and also sort of like really depressed about like, 
that there was ever a world where something like this could be made and appreciated and discussed. Um, and I, I guess that's a good place to start because like, I really think that like, especially for the runtime and for how, how little there is here. Right. Like I, I think that, that you really feel the budget though. Peter Weir shoots the shit out of it for uh, what the budget must've been. It's mostly single location. It's mostly dialogue driven. Um, and it really builds this like, really trenchant, really um, complicated, really uh, like human um, dynamic, uh, like exploring the ways that like the psychology of class and gender and um, privilege sort of set people against one another and lead to these sort of like breakdowns that I that I found really like I don't know. I think that this would work as a play. I think that it would work as like a television series or something. Um, I, I was really impressed with it and basically on every level. And I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it. Yeah, me as well. And I know like we, with us being in the Peter Weir sort of um, slate that we're in now, we had a few different options at our disposal. The votes were kind of split. And I, I, remember looking at the plumber and thinking because your listener i was the um the tiebreak deciding vote and the i guess you know the the sole reason that we're talking about this today not to like shoot my shot but you know holy shit when we're talk- the very same mac uh no i mean uh, i would have been fine talking about any of the peter weir options because he's a great filmmaker um but i remember looking at the plumber and thinking you know this is a particular it seems to be a particular blend of things that we like have not necessarily hit on um, up to this point. It's a made for TV movie. It seems to, I don't know, imbue certain things that we might be better fared talking about compared to um, some of the other things, which I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that'd be great. I still got to watch a lot of Peter Weir's films, but like coming into the plumber and watching it, um, I'm kind of in the same boat as Harry, where I think this film is, uh, extremely successful. I, I very much enjoyed my time with it. The kind of base level normie <laughs> comparisons that I have to sort of like get myself to the point where I, I can characterize this amongst other contemporary, semi-contemporary works. But thinking like it's it's almost like a long form. It feels like a Seinfeld episode at, at some points where it is like a very particular thought exercise is the phrase that I kept coming back to because it is like once you kind of understand what the quote unquote game is, it is, and we were talking about this before we started recording, but it, it is a relatively short feature. Once you know what the game is, time is like kind of irrelevant. You know, I could, I could be entrenched in this thought exercise for, um, a couple hours plus, um, because of, I think, how well it is articulated and how well Peter Weir goes about doing it. Um, I also thought about, um, Buñuel. Uh, uh, not that I've seen like all of his films, but his, I think most famous works dealing in um, like societal satire and pushing to the extreme in this case of this is, it's the perspective of somebody who's very blue collar juxtaposed against um, this like very, this uh, perspective of somebody who does not want to be, you know, quote unquote, some poor thing who is, you know, a a housewife who is relegated. Um, You know, she is, she is uh, an intellectual um, and she's very like outwardly conflicted about being put into this sort of role that, I mean, her, her, her inner circles, her friends, even her fucking husband is like kind of knee jerk reaction, just like willing to slot her into. Yeah. He's going to be really fun to talk talk about huh 
uh, extremely capital F fun. Um, but the, the fact that, yeah, I mean, we, we see, we see both of those sides really leaned into, and that is a, a genuinely capital F fun sort of exploration. And like for those reasons and many others, I, I found myself really gravitating favorably toward the plumber. Um, and I don't know, Jason, can you say the same? Did, did you, did, were your pipes getting unclogged or, or what was the, what was hmm. the case there? Uh, they were, they've been reclogged all of a sudden. Um, I have no oh. idea how to pick up for a respond to that. No, I'm glad you set up because the movie for me was, I mean, the, the situation, the setup, uh, really e- easily understood a, a menacing plumber who's not supposed to be there just continues to be there. And everybody sort of makes the, it makes Jill feel insane for thinking that like it's that it's menacing that that he's like he shouldn't be there all that kind of stuff it's kind of incredible how well it cleaves to genre right like i think late in the movie they sort of wink at it where um that her husband is like well of course we can just get rid of him he's not some kind of monster right and it really is it's like oh yeah we're watching a monster movie like it it really is like a home invasion monster movie i want to get there i think a better place to start we need to get to to talking about Max as a character at, at a certain point. I think I think a, great, a better place to start is going to be talking about the Cowpers themselves, uh, Jill and Brian. We are introduced to them as um, they're researchers, they're anthropologists, they're work, they're liberals. Probably they have all kinds of uh, cultural artifacts from New Guinea and other parts of the world. Other like just put it bluntly, non-white indigenous parts of the world. Um, they appear to be uh, heavily engaged with the various local customs. She recounts a story of uh, that she's building a manuscript on where um, a local tribesman uh, or shaman, I guess, um, sort of, you know, in a way accosted her in her tent and she tossed a bowl of milk at him and it was just like a scary event. And like, it's sort of almost uh, intimated that like perhaps that was a form of curse on her for, for being there maybe. Anyway, like the way that we're introduced to these characters is very worldly, very or excuse me, not very worldly, very like well-traveled uh, people, very like maybe perhaps even altruistic or philanthropic because they're studying the effects of industrialized society on these uh, on on these uh, indigenous tribes of New Guinea. Um, but slowly it like chips away at the idea. Uh, I guess the more it builds the character, the less empathy I personally, I had for these characters and more, I sort of delighted in their, in their forms of terror, like Jill more often uh, than anybody. Um, just because there's a certain like uh, hokey um, uh, new agey hippie dippy like end of the seventies bullshit about her that really like made it a little more I don't know devilishly impishly joyful to watch a certain amount of squirming on on the part of both of those characters and the fact that like she has she and her husband do not have a great relationship not very communicative they're you know fairly supportive and stuff but he's always at work and she is uh she is she doesn't have a job she's building her manuscript um and there seems to be some friction between them that they attempt to patch over here and there but i think it's just like very i did not expect that level of depth like cody was saying we lean very heavily into both sides of the well both sides so to speak but both bodies of both parties i guess between the married couple and max um i did not expect them to go that deep into the building of these characters and the building of the relationship in a 71 minute movie, including credits, you know, uh, did that reflect your experience too, Harry? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I, I think you're getting at one half of this movie that in my mind is kind of doing two things really, really well. And um, my friend, Maddie, friend of the pod, um, she was going to be on this episode, wasn't able to, unfortunately. Um, she had sort of the opposite experience. She saw this movie twice and speaks in her letterboxed, um, which is Maddie Saris uh, at Maddie Saris about how like the first time this was like a, like fundamentally a movie about, 
like gender and about how scary it is to be a woman. And the second time she found the the class um, elements to it. And I think that like what makes this movie so fascinating and so successful is that it, it walks both those lines, right? Like I think that you described it as like a kind of horror comedy, Jason, which I, I think it is. And like you said, like, I think that there is a kind of almost get out like pleasure in watching these sort of stuffy, sort of like tropey, intellectualized, white collar, uh, intellectual class people sort of like run up against the limits of their supposed liberalism, having to confront the, the real world. But also, I think that the movie really... I think that a simpler movie could have gotten away with just being about that. And we would have gotten some schadenfreude out of watching Max sort mm-hmm. of beguile and frustrate these people. Um, I was very impressed with how l- hard the movie swerves against that in order to capitalize upon not only the horror, but also to make everyone I think involved in the story more sympathetic, which is that, and I like, I almost said this when you were talking about Seinfeld. This is like an episode of Seinfeld if, like, the constant fear of sexual assault that hangs over a movie like Alien is even less sort of like metaphorical. Um, it's like very, very potent in this movie throughout this movie. I mean, from the very first scene, like it's, and like they speak to it directly, right? Like I, um, the, the main character talks to her female friends about it. They use the R word several times. Uh, Max even makes a joke quote unquote about how he was in prison for sexual assault uh, at one point, And then he's like, nah, I'm just kidding. But like, it's an incredibly charged relationship, right? Like she is, alone on the 15th floor of this apartment all day and she's got this plumber who is asserting himself physically over her space will not leave is sort of leveraging the idea of his expertise his idea that he knows something more than her that he has some power over her and his physicality right very clearly like the way that these scenes are shot and blocked he is very constantly physically imposing on her he is uh, the very first days there he takes a shower in their shower and like just to start the gaslighting she can't even really tell if that's what he's doing but he doesn't seem to be hiding it right he's whistling he's sort of singing to himself he is constantly providing her with information and asking her for things or about things things about herself excuse me um and so it's like we we have these two things that that to me um really did a great job of making everything feel everyone feel more sympathetic um And also making the whole movie feel more tragic, right? Because I think that, like, I think you're right, like, especially um, as the sort of, like, we are much closer to the intellectuals in this movie than we are to Max. Um, And and being sort of, like, liberal lefties ourselves, we have this sort of predisposition, or I did, to, like, root for Max almost, right? And, like, the movie anticipates that, right? The movie is like, no, you, you don't get it. Like, I know that you're these people. And I like these people would be the type of people who would go see a movie like The Plumber and be like, look at these stuffy fucking like well to do's. And like, I can't wait to see them not actually be able to handle the fact that they're actually encountering a working class person. And they subvert that by making Max like literally, like I said, basically a CIA operative who is systematically dismantling this woman's life in order to isolate and gaslight her uh, from her family, from her own sense of control, from her own sense of ownership over her space, uh, from her own sense of safety and security. Um, it's fucked up, right? And I think that like, I think that this movie works as well as it does because it makes both of those points at once, right? It's like, yes, this is a movie about class. Yes, like Max, and we'll, we'll get to him, like you said, Jason, he does have reasons to be aggrieved that are, that are fascinating 
interesting to think about and to um, take notice of. And all of that is true. And also he is using like class politics, like almost the politics of the people who would be watching this almost as an excuse to be a predator, right? Like he is, it is, it is not trivial that he is taking out this uh, class-based animus on a woman that he feels he can exercise control over in very patriarchal, very heteronormative um, ways. And I, I think that it's really important to examine both of those. And I think that we end up, to this movie's great credit, uh, much more sympathetic towards Jill than we might have been just reading this uh, story on paper, right? Because I, like I said, I think that like there is a real sense in which the movie has to fight back against the idea that Jill and her husband are just these like posh assholes that we want to see get it. And they do that by making Jill very sympathetic and also by making the danger and the threat against her very, very real and very, very um frightening to to be a part of i mean i think there are parts of this movie that are like legitimately skin crawling to experience yeah totally and i i definitely get what you're putting forth with of course i don't think this is quite a movie where it's like as we've talked about a lot on this podcast in the past of like movies where we're actively being trained as viewers to watch the movie in a particular way there's definitely like the movie, uh, we, we, I, I feel like the plumber is like kind of what you were gesturing at, like leveraging certain, like we're anticipating the audience to latch onto like the titular plumber, for example, and like viewing the story in a particular way and kind of weaponizing that. Um, uh, definitely. And with that, there's sort of a, a fun arena in which the movie can kind of play in and, and juggle these, these multiple viewpoints. Uh, like I, I was definitely, I felt myself waiting for that, that other kind of shooted drop if i'm blanking out on the phrase the other shoe is going to drop because that makes sense um with regards to the you know we're we're watching um you know this this uh this woman at home jill we're watching jill cowper at home with this plumber and like she's dealing with very like domesticated ass life problems of man this plumber just can't like just get his shit done and get out of my hair versus the um, what her husband Brian is going through, like we see a lot of, I mean, uh, not that it's like a lot of the runtime, but kind of a surprising amount for something that is whatever it is, like 78 minutes of like getting into the weeds of what his work is actually about. And he, he can't let go of this one tribe where it's like, oh, um, and I'm blanking out on the details, but this one, this, the presence of this one like entity or this one person is back. Um, well, like it's, something it's that, it was the practice of, of um, ritual cannibalism, right? Cannibal, and, yes. And he has yes. this, this sort of anecdotal, um, evidence that it might be returning as a practice in this community when, mm -hmm. uh, that has been sort of dismissed as outdated and regressive by the rest of the intellectual community. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And I, yes, thank you. And I, I was kind of waiting for the, like the intersection to be made abundantly clear to me, the pea brain viewer. And like, granted it is like very much, you know, he's doing his intellectual, his PhD sort of approach over here and paying way less attention to his wife at home. Who's very much endangered in this, uh, this very private space that she has. Maybe that is the other shoe that dropped and I was just kind of like shooting too far, but the, the, this kind of skin crawly moment for me, getting back to the, the sort of, um, 
uh, what you're talking about, where like watching this the first time, having those kind of like gender dynamics and pol- politics set in of when like you can see visibly on her face the horror when she finds that her husband and this uh this plumber had like a relatively pleasant conversation you can just watch the color flood out Dude, of her face it's so good and also that's like the third time that happens like it turns out that max is fucking friends with everybody in the building and like everybody yeah. loves that dude and it's like they can't and and like part of the great condescension is is that like they can't imagine and also they don't think max is basically smart enough to conduct mm-hmm. some sort of like campaign like this like they just see him as this sort of like dopey affable plumber and then like mm-hmm. when he becomes so psychologically sinister um you can see how like he leverages that um affect that persona to his advantage yeah yeah absolutely and and that um and that persona is kind of manifested even further even when he's not on screen you know kind of the shot being husband coming in and being like oh yeah this this guy that's been terrorizing you uh i talked with him he seems you know nice enough the chaser to that uh, it's not even a chaser it's more like another shot of (laughs) when the 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 bathroom collapsing in on itself when all of these intellectual scholarly buddies uh, when that one guy goes in and I'm blanking out on again all the details but when the bathroom sort of collapses and that like comes out in their favor which is like oh yeah this like bath- our bathroom being under construction and like this inevitable failing uh, is like played in our like i'm wow I'm, I'm going i'm going to geneva i'm i'm the smartest man in the world it's like oh God, that's like but that doesn't we did the wrong math and got to the right answer yeah. and that is sort of like horrific um just like reading between the lines um literally yeah, I, failing I, upwards right yeah absolutely yeah yeah 100 but but that is yeah the sort of fun line that this movie is is tiptoeing um again all works to its favor but there's just like uh, yeah like a lot of plate spitting that this movie um it, it goes through and um yeah, i don't know it, it largely pays off which uh is thrilling for me uh, a pea brain viewer so there's that <laughs> not so uh i i i do like where we got with jill because I don't mean to intimate that like she's not a sympathetic character, right, that there's not like reasons to be worried for her safety, all that kind of stuff. I, it's not just like a torture porn, you know, fixation in this movie. It, like there is, there are stakes there. Like I think she's, I don't know that she is as, or at least I didn't read her as, as sympathetic as like, oh, this is a, like an even handed critique of both sides of, you know, this, so to speak, spectrum between the classes and, and between, between gender and the different lines of the end between the intellectual uh, class and the working class. I don't, the, the, all the lines that this movie draws, I don't think that it's necessarily like uh, fully fleshed out in both sides. I think that she's played very sympathetically by, um, oh, gee, I don't have the actress's name in front of me. Uh, actually, I, I literally do. It's from- Judy Morris. Thank you. Uh, Judy Morris uh, plays it's, her. Uh, very- it's Judy Morris. Thank you. Um, anyway, Jill uh, plays her very sympathetically, I think. And there are moments where you are concerned for her safety. Like they're like through, uh, if only blocking and cinematography alone, there's that just side note. There's that one shot where the camera is like looking up from below. Like it must be somebody just sliding on their back with the camera on the ground. And she's like headed toward the bathroom. I believe it's just before he breaks in through the ceiling above. But every one of those moments, just because Max is, and I don't know if like we, if we want to pivot to Max, we can, or if we've got more gas in the tank for the Cowpers, we can probably synthesis from here. But there's that, like, I think Max is just so overblown comedically evil and enigmatic that it's really hard for me to the say. The music does a lot of heavy lifting too. I mean, they, yeah, they really true. treat him like he's Michael Myers in this movie. I was about to say, like, he is 
you brought up Seinfeld earlier, uh, Cody, like there's, he's part like 50% putty, 50% Jason Voorhees. Like he's unstoppable. He's invincible. And yet he's just so <laughs> goofy and, and, and at, like effective. I don't know. Like he, he, he <laughs> or really like do- Banya. <laughs> <laughs> like i think it's just in contrast to that it's hard for me to say i think the movie is sort of giving a lens toward this thing that both sides so to speak of this of this lines that it's drawing and it's saying like look at how goofily we can portray this this guy with this one person how like uh incredibly um dynamic and strange and perverted and odd he can be while jill is just a, a lady who wants silence in her apartment so that she can study. Uh, like there's very like sort of one note. She's worried. She's concerned. I'm not, again, don't mean to say, don't mean to hand wave the concerns of anybody watching this and being like, well, that's pretty freaky. That's like reflective of real concerns that women have in daily life. Just that I, I think through the lens of this movie, at least I was reading straight white man in Minneapolis. I was reading that he is too invincible too too godlike too impish for me to take like either of them very seriously um i didn't like that's why i said comedies i don't read it as much of like a straight horror uh until like the tables start to turn i mean at the very end we have a moment of like oh well that's an unnecessary cruelty in a way almost or at least as i was reading it i've, I've hogged the mic for a little bit too long but i think that there's uh, a really interesting like shared view of both of these things that the movie ends up giving you um through these like really overblown characters i think that's a really interesting point um i didn't necessarily have the same experience i think that like the power of max as the sort of movie monster only made him more threatening um in my mind or just like the sort of like the idea that like I, I, so much of this movie is about gaslighting, right? About the idea that, like, that the more over the top Max becomes, um, the more effective his strategy is because it, it's oh. almost like that sort of like, um, what's that one? It's that scene in, um, uh, the French Connection, I think it is, where, like, they have a naked black cop dressed like a cowboy that, like, punches one of the victims in the face because it's like, well, now, like, if you, talk about police brutality you have to tell people that a naked black cop dressed as a cowboy beat you up and nobody's gonna believe you motherfucker that's how i felt about max right is that like well like what are you talking about like max is just the the maintenance guy like of course he's not conducting this like black ops operation to drive you insane like that's a that's a ridiculous assertion and i think that like I think that the third dimension of this movie that is maybe even more trenchant than the first two, the the class and the um, gender ones, is this idea that Max's outrageous success in this movie is predicated on so much more than his own ability. It's predicated so much on a betrayal of Jill by her institutions, right? Like, I think that one of the big things that this movie subverts is the idea that Jill is the quote-unquote helpless housewife, right? Like, it's established very on she is a successful um, and very intelligent academic in her own right. She lives this enlightened um, sort of new wave, uh, very much so, Jason, like you said, relationship and life with her husband. They are um, partners. They are academics. They are equals. Um, in many ways, she even says to him, like, no, I chose to be a housewife. I was tired of being in academia. You didn't do this for me. You have not disenfranchised me. Mm-hmm. I am enjoying myself. I am pursuing my own studies independently. Um, 
they do all of these things where it's supposed to be sort of like, yes, like maybe in a traditional relationship, a conservative relationship, the housewife would be disenfranchised and disempowered and not believed by her husband and by her community. But it wouldn't certainly not in this relationship, like certainly not when when they are so much more enlightened than than the traditional couple. And yet it's so easy for Max to isolate her. Right. It's so because, frankly, because everybody wants to believe Max more than they want to believe Jill. Because it, it, it works better for them. It works better for their politics, for, for Brian, right? It's expedient. It's convenient for him to be like, oh, my wife is overreacting. Um, it's like, it's ridiculous to think that this plumber relationship would mean anything. He's just a plumber. He's not doing anything. He's not up to anything. And also, I have so much more important things to worry about than my wife, right? Like, I'm doing this work. And everybody feels that way, right? Like, all of her friends are sort of like, they think it's kind of quaint that she's having this sort of like fraught relationship with Max. Like her her best gal friend even like alludes to the fact that she's probably kind of turned on by it, which is like, you know, like imagine what a betrayal that would be. And again, like throughout the movie, like I think at multiple points, Jill is like breaking down. Like Brian comes home and she's crying and she's upset. And he's like, you're being, he doesn't ever use the H word hysterical, but it like, fucking lingers over this entire movie like sexual assault itself, right? Is this, there? Jill is constantly told that she's overreacting, that she's imagining things, that nothing is really going on, that, that she's, you know, she's, they like, even Max plays with her, right? He's, this way, he's like, oh, I, I've known housewives who have gone out of their minds uh, for less than this. It's it's the boredom, right? It's like you're stuck all day alone at home. He's like literally like doing the yellow wallpaper to her and like reminding her of that shit as it occurs. Um, and I, I think that like it's if there is one thing that that almost makes Max sympathetic or not necessarily sympathetic, but like there is a there is sort of a um like Max's revenge here leveled against the maybe the only person who doesn't deserve it, right? Or certainly an individual who doesn't deserve it is uh, as much to um, reveal the state of things as they really are, as it is to uh, sort of like break her out of this insulated, protected life, right? Like a lot of what he's doing is like, hey, like welcome to the real world sort of thing. It's like, and and the real horror in this movie is as much about how easy it is for Max to get away with what he's doing as Max himself, right? Because it's like in a, it's, it's all too realistic to see Brian, the husband reacting this way and to see all of her friends reacting this way and to see how her entire world, her entire safety net could turn on her so easily and make it so possible for Max to have this kind of access to her just because of who they are and what they want. And maybe moreover, what they don't want to have to deal with. Right. Um, and, and how easy it is for them to slot her into the role of the hysterical housewife, just as they slot Max into the um, clueless, harmless plumber role. Um, and there, there's something so insidious and true and horrible about that um, portrayal in this movie that I, that I think makes a lot of sense. It is like something I re- think is like really nuanced to depict and that they do a really fantastic job of. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, the more we talk about it, the more I think about it. That's why, um, Judy Morris's, uh, portrayal as, as Jill Cowper, um, like that's, it's, it's a tough role to 
play. I don't want to say it's thankless, but it is like a tough because she is the fulcrum for kind of balancing what what seems to me to be like these. I mean, it's multifaceted, but the two sides of you know we've got we've got Max on one side who. Um, it, it, it occupies a character where, you know, a lot is kind of thrown into that role. He shrugs a lot of it off with just sort of the way he plays it, the sort of eccentricity, the, oh, I'm just kidding. I didn't actually go to prison for this. Um, but there's, I mean, there's enough shown and enough spoken to where like he, the, like this, this could be any number of, you know, working class individuals in this, this type of role who have maybe dabbled, like, similar backgrounds or whatever the case might be like there's enough i think imbued into that character and he the sort of manic uh like state that he um that he uh he uh ivar Kant's, I'm not sure if i said that correctly like the way that he plays that like it is um like he he takes on a lot of and like the the other side of that being you know her her husband who and I guess you know, as far as like the other shoe dropping, you know, the fact that this, this other pair, this, this thing that he's clinging to from an academic standpoint, you know, this thing that his, his, um, his colleague is like, Oh, don't bother bringing that up. They're here for like the nutrition. Don't bring up this like other kind of t- tangentially related thing. He brings it up and it gets kind of thrown back in his face or just like, you know, let's talk about something that's more like appropriate for your visit. And they're like flying out early or and. And it's, it's that that feeds into the sort of what you were saying, Harry, of like, I, like, I have more important things to contend with. I can kind of look at what's going on back at home. Um, you know, my home base, you know, if we're looking at the, you know, the hierarchy of needs, like the ostensibly more important thing, I can look at that and kind of laugh at it because this thing that he views as more important is, you know, it's really, it's really, it's, I shouldn't say it's, it's fucking up. It's like he fucked up. Um, you know, like the, the, the reason for this imbalance is his own sort of, um, you know, the, the reason he's so like visibly unsupportive and inattentive is because of his own failings, his own ego that drove him to like raise this thing that was like not the thing that he should have brought up. And like, that's, I don't, it's, 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 I don't know, an odd, it's an uncomfortable balance um it all goes back to why i mean obviously um the why jill's role is so important yeah go ahead yeah well and the more fragile his ego becomes the more dismissive he becomes of his wife right the more he relegates Mm -hmm. her to traditional roles um this is somewhat tangential and i i don't want to get like too real about it but like i think one of the big reasons why this movie works so effectively for me is that like i think that it recreates like actual predatory dynamics that that women have to face in workplaces so often which is just this idea that like men will do everything but anything that can be actually like concretely labeled so like this is how you get like women who are like yeah this was a toxic workplace this was like men would like the the men were constantly leveraging the sort of patriarchal threat of power imbalance and rape over me but uh, they, there's nothing they can actually point to, right? Like they stop just short of anything that they can actually sort of express. And that's what makes the gaslighting so, so horrible because like, and I, I think that this movie is triumphant because we see this so clearly from Jill's perspective. Like there is no ambiguity in this movie in terms of Max himself, right? He is torturing her. 
he is like leveraging his power and his physical menace over her in order to make her uncomfortable in her own home and in order to force her to um, feel like she has no control over the situation. He is doing that because he enjoys making this woman feel like she has no control. He enjoys his perception is that he is um, sort of like turning the tables on her, right? Because, and we'll get into Max next. Um, but, and like, there is something so true about like, every woman's experience like I'm just there are so many people i know who have had this exact sort of experience right where it's like they just are never like believed or listened to when they're like hey like my boss is being fucked up to me like my my boss has like done some stuff that's made me feel really uncomfortable and like the whole point is like they can't say like oh well like he didn't like totally necessarily assault me though of course assaults do often happen um but like this is this is a really good way of showing that like this sort of like psychological torture is a transgression and a sexual transgression in and of itself and i think that this movie does a really good job of demonstrating why that's true like like why even without the act itself something like this can be so that can be an act of sexualized psychological terrorism um and i, I think that like it's such a strange and um delicate thing to do a movie about you know um but especially because like it goes so far in some ways and it's so comedic in some ways right to the point where like max at one point has like built scaffolding into their bathroom and like created this maze in his own little world to live in in there um but it also never like it never goes all the way right and like it does that because the the plausible deniability where max can um sort of like play dumb is super important to his campaign in this sense, right? Yeah, he's leveraging the fact that she is not going to be believed, that she's like, that, that there's no... It's essential, con- right. Right, that there's no uh, action she can take. She constantly refers to, um, like, she tells Brian, you need to call and do something. You need to take, like, where are the channels for her to make something happen? She goes directly to the superintendent's office and it turns out to be Max's room and the lady next door thinks he's, you know, a hot, sexy, young piece of ass. Like there's, there's, there's no way to, nowhere to go for her, like for her to find support. He knows that he preys on that directly. And that is like the source of his power more than in most cases, in most like instances, most vignettes, most scenes from this movie, more so than his size or his like access is the knowledge that, outside the bounds of that apartment, he, she can do functionally nothing. And inside the bounds of that apartment, he's always watching. He's always like in a position of power. Anyway. Um, it is like, it is very much like, like a movie monster that you see the mask that you see the face of in the first scene that like you, you could sort of know where it's going. Uh, you know, that the only the, the power that he has more than, uh, than direct violence is, is the threat of it is, is the, the possibility that it will happen and the lack of recourse. Um, it makes it a really like, compelling i mean we we talk about it in terms of like the um the, the certain politics and the uh sort of the statements that it's making about class and gender but it is also like just really compelling to watch i think which is not what i expected from um a tv movie either uh, harry you were commenting that it felt in all respects except length like a feature length film um that it like actually does have uh, an act structure it has real momentum and it has like uh, scenes of that build a certain amount of drama and conflict outside of the main plot um there's one of the first scenes where I realized that we were going to be getting more than we uh, bargained for in terms of the plot, in terms of the narrative anyway, it was um, when uh, I, I pulled the exact quote because I thought it was very, like, it, it hit pretty heavy, was when um, 
they're talking about potentially moving to Geneva because Brian might be up for this essentially a promotion. Like they want to accept his work and have him work in Geneva. Uh, and she says, uh, yeah, well, you know, she's not excited about it. And Brian asks why. And she says, well, you know, she says, they say Geneva puts a strain on your marriage is what she says. And he says, that's up to us in a really sweet moment. That's like, you know, we, we make our own destiny. And she's like, yeah. And then walks away and like the scene ends and it's like, well, shit, they're such a perfect encapsulation of their relationship. Right. Because it's like, that sounds like the right thing to say. Brian saying, well, that's up to us, but it's also like completely denying her agency and her concern and just sort of like, yeah, yeah, shut up, shut up, sweetie. Like it's going to be fine. (laughs) And it's the most damning that she says just, yeah, and moves on. Like there's no further, like she knows that no matter how much she talks about, I mean, this is just, we could go on and on and on with examples, uh, despite it being only 71 minutes long, but just like the depth with which they portray these characters i think is where some of the like i actually just it it didn't feel like um just one like gremlins moment after another with him coming through the ceiling and him destroying their bathroom and him breaking things up um it like that i think the very like human heart at the the human dynamic at the heart of this movie is what kept me interested um and like tv movies for lack of not for lack of trying can often like lose uh, momentum just because of the odd pacing and structure, but because it starts off right off the bat um, with like a very clear setup and very rich characters. uh, It like, it doesn't, despite my like leaning toward, I find this more of a, like in, in my experience watching it anyway, I found more like sort of guilty impish pleasure at the sort of like, spiral of doubt and fear that sort of commences um despite that i feel like there's uh like a real um a real sense of what it like is trying to do in that and it's trying to build something far more than that uh, I'm, it's not just trying to be like watch this horrible thing happen again and again and again it's like it's trying to tell a real narrative here and it slaps on the uh, gender and class structure and struggles on top of that and like builds with it but it's not um too dependent on that to be uh interesting and and, and watchable and it's not too dependent on the salacious uh i keep using impishness but like the salacious like horror aspect to like actually tackle those bigger questions i guess i'm saying more broad things than specifics because i think i've more or less run out of specific talking points but harry do you have anything more oh, to say? I mean, on? I'm excited. Let's talk about class, right? Like, let's talk yeah. about like how well the central metaphor of this movie works, right? Because like that, the whole point is that he is a plumber. I think uh, Maddie, again, in one of her reviews of this movie, referred to him as like a vampire. It's like, it's almost your fault that you let him in because he had to ask permission. Uh, and he uses this ostensible um, like reason for being there uh, as leverage to continue being there and leverage over her uh, as much as anything else. And it's such a fantastic metaphor, right? Because it's like, here is this plumbing, right? Like plumbing is sort of the ultimate dirty job. It's it's the ultimate sort of refutation of modernity in some cases, right? It's like, no matter how high and academic and intellectual we are, we all have to poop and somebody has to deal with that shit. You can tell a lot about people by their bathroom. By yeah. their bathroom. That's what he says. It's what you don't see that counts in plumbing, all of that. And so it's like, here we have these high-minded people. Ultimately, they have to deal with uh, the mechanics of being human, and they need people to help them do that, right? They can't do it themselves. They need somebody to take care of their plumbing. And so here is this guy who all of a sudden has power over maintaining their lifestyle, right? It's like, well... Like you don't, you don't like it, but you do need me because if you're, if your bathroom doesn't work, all of a sudden you are not the high-minded person that you are. You are reduced to 
being the animals that we all are in the end, right? And like he is very explicit about this. I think one of the other reasons that this movie works so well is because Max is so aware of class politics, though the extent to which he is sort of like leveraging them in order to be predatory can be argued. But he like straight up brings up that like, first of all, he is um, uneducated. So he is um, nervous in educated company. He tells her that explicitly. He is constantly doing this thing where he is sharing a little bit too much information about himself just in order to sort of like unnerve her oftentimes with a, a even less subtle sort of end. Like when he talks about how he was in prison, but also to establish legitimate characterization, right? Like here's a guy who he has been in charge of this building ostensibly for a long time. He has seen people, as he says, come and go. He feels some sense of ownership over the building because he is the, it's the sort of like Hegelian slave master shit, right? Where it's like, hey, these are my like tools. Like this is my building. Like I'm the one who actually builds it and understands it. And like you are just profiteering off of it. Um, so I have, I think at one point he says, I have as much a right to be here, meaning her apartment as you do right and and in his mind there is some truth to that because it's like well i'm gonna be here long after you're gone sort of thing um and and also like there there is a legitimate sort of animus that he has against all academics and intellectuals because he probably actually has been made to feel small right like like when he says that he's actually a folk singer not a plumber she laughs at him and he takes offense to that um later on in order to sort of like try to reassert herself she corrects his grammar in a way that really deflates him um and so like there there is this double-edged and again nuance to this because it's like i think that like we are meant to read that max has legitimate um reasons to feel aggrieved by these people he has to be um, like up uh, this community he has to be a part of, or rather that he's not allowed to be a part of. He's so disenfranchised by the people around him, but he is taking it out in a predatory way, um, using the avenues that are available to him via his gender. Right. And like, that is the, that is what makes this all so messy is that it's like, yes, like, yes, Max is, um, is going to be like aggrieved and, and yes, he has a reason to be aggrieved, but also, you know, as with real life, like he is also sexist and racist, right? Like, I, I think that there's also racial politics in this, in that he makes some disparaging comments about black people at multiple points in the movie. And it's just like, yes, it's, it operates the same way, right? It's like, here Max has this animus where he he feels um, less than, he feels disenfranchised and marginalized uh, by the people around him, and he is reasserting his control over the situation by taking other avenues of control, uh, such as race and gender, in order to feel uh, like like he has control or that that he has a, a higher hierarchy in the in the uh, the way things go than these people, and it's like it, 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 even that is the sort of horrible sympathetic, right? Is that you can tell that like there's something real happening here, right? Like Max actually does feel like he is driven by an internalized self loathing or a uh, feeling of like inequality um, that he is trying to in his own way. Uh, from his own perspective, equalize. It just so happens that the way he's doing that, the tools he's using to do that are um, deeply problematic and and maybe, you know, point to a larger dynamic of how that works in general, right? Yeah, definitely. And the, the messiness you're talking about is, um, I mean, that's why a lot of this, 
works, I think, ultimately pretty well. Getting into kind of the final notes of the movie, where you know uh, she Jill is 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 fed up. She has that stare down with uh, with Max, and he's like, "Man, this is gonna take however long." He says, "Like week, couple weeks, probably ten um, days." Yeah, ten days. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's that would be rough, and and she's feeling it. She, you can kind of see her. F- like it feed into that role kind of unwillingly. I've never seen the Stepford wives, but there she gives off a, a vibe that I sort of imagine from like she, she comes across very robotic. She is, she welcomes Brian home and yeah, she's all she, made up. She's got her hair up for the first time in the movie. She's like, she looks like a Stepford wife. Like you said, yeah. Candlelit dinner, like, like a lot of red flags. I mean, from our perspective, it's like why, like things that are very unjill yeah, or the things what? that she's kind of, re- yeah. The last time we'd seen her, she was in total, like plain clothes just around the house. And then suddenly night out stuff at home. Yeah. Right. Red flag, like you said. It's so funny, dude. They, I mean, and they, they drop it like, like this is the, the last terrific moment, right? It's like, this is the making of a Karen. It's like, this is how you get a Karen. It's like, this entire movie leads up to it, and like, there she is at the end, fully formed. <laughs> like, she's the type of person that, that plants fucking um, stolen goods on the plumber in order to get him thrown out, because like, that's what she has, has, this is what the experiences of these movies have made her. Right. And that's kind of the note we're left with, right? Where she feeds into, like, I need to become uh, a Karen, maybe not Karen, but a Karen in order to, like, get this, to, to like, rid myself of this issue. And on one hand, it, it's that note of, you know, as 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 the camera freeze frames on Ana de Armas and knives out her just, like, looking down from her, her ivory tower, <laughs> just uh, looking down upon the parking lot. Um, completely different context, I, I, I realized, but it was the first thing I thought of while I was watching as the credits roll. Um, you Watching her, you know, look down from above, and, like, on one hand, yeah, the predatory guy who has, like, a lot of um, sexist, racist, uh, like, undertones to the things that he says and he does. Granted, a lot of reasons for him to feel bereaved and to, like, that inform the things that uh, that he does, but he's he's been taken away. He's um, you know out of her life, hopefully forever. But I don't, you know, at the same time, you know, giving birth to a monster. I don't love, you know, seeing this sort of uh, <laughs> this this up and up intellectual household necessarily. You know, feel the the pleasure that they're feeling. It, it's coming from kind of a weird place, but I, I do. There is a certain thrill to be felt um and maybe you guys feel differently i like it, when a movie kind of puts you in check where you're just like oh wow like you, you got me i've i've been gamed here there is just like i i definitely felt that um with this and i i, I think the ways the ways in which the game pieces were laid up to that point felt kind of appropriate enough it whereas like the the getting put in check felt you know relatively justified it is it is messy, and the messiness is is very much the point, and uh, I very much love that about the plumber. Me the too. Capital P plumber. The, the capital T, capital P plumber. The plumber. Uh, there is like, if it were just a little bit less, I don't. If it were just a little bit less serious, a little bit less. I, I and I know I described this as not a too serious movie earlier, but like the note it ends on, I think, is not like a ha ha. ha. Like I expected more of a right. maybe a more pulpy ending than I ended up getting. If it had that pulpy ending, almost indistinguishable in my mind from like an early Verhoeven movie. I think just like how 
on the nose it can be. He's wearing a liberal equals less tax bumper sticker on his jacket. He's a folk singer in the spirit of Bob Dylan. He writes a Bob Dylan song. It's a pretty good song. It's not a bad <laughs> it song. It's, it's spoiler alert. I think it's going to be the credit song of this episode. Um, but like it, your, your discussion of the ending, Cody, is sparking in my mind. The when it, when we finished, uh, Sky got to watch maybe thirty minutes of this movie with me. But you know, pretty easy to pick up. And by the end, she was like, "There's like." All she had to do to get back at this like movie monster guy was just plant a piece of jewelry on him. That's as, as like the position of power that she was in that she it turned out she was in. She was like leveraging by the end was just to make up a lie. And I, I mean, for, 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 for the listener, um, she takes a watch that uh, has been like uh, lampshaded a bunch of times as maybe Max would steal it. And she actually it's does so plant good, it in dude. his car. It's a very, it's a very, very well. well and also her husband, um, um gives it to her as a gift to sort of apologize for being so dismissive of her early on. Yeah. It's like Akja, right? Where like she has the, the like little golden statue that she has to like follow through the movie. It's so (laughs) funny the way that this like, watch yeah. keeps being symbolic and and it ends up like as a point of com- a point of conflict between brian and jill when she uh says that she's lost it and she's like no it's gone don't worry like i didn't leave it at meg's i didn't put it in the bathroom it has not been like left by the dishes it's not here uh and you know the imp- intimation is she's already hidden it but uh just like when sky point i thought oh this is a you know a cute moment for the movie to uh, cute quote unquote like grading on a curve here cute rye no, for the movie to end on that, I wasn't expecting. But uh, when Sky pointed that out, I was like, "Yeah, there's a certain absurdity to this." Like, like Harry, you said that the, when the tables turned, or like she's flipped the power dynamic, so to speak, that there was a certain amount of, like, she could have done that at any time in the movie, at any time after she got the watch, I suppose, or with any valuables, and turned the tables completely on the situation, um, where it took him. I'm not going to say he's the underdog or anything like he's not to be, uh, you know, championed as part of this movie, but just objectively, it took him a long time uh, to build at least a days of work to build like that certain uh, silent, soft power over her that he had, because I don't think maybe with the exception of like grabbing her shoulders and shaking her at one point, I don't think he exercises any like hard physical force against jill it's it's all again none that can't be denied right right i mean he he leers and looms over her quite a lot uh, in a way that is very threatening again not not hand waving it just like objectively it is mostly soft power that he wields over this woman and of course i mean unless you're considering the house part of her physical being (laughs) that he's completely destroying their bathroom constantly another one of the movies i think very funny bits is that he's not fixing anything he's truly just breaking everything constantly in that room um i feel like that feels like more of junk to our thoughts so we'll get through a couple final thoughts here with harry before we get there yeah i think that this uh i think the ending is a really big part of what makes this movie so successful and i think it's a tragedy right like i think that this movie is is kind of a tragedy it's kind of a battle for jill's soul and it's sort of a what Maisie knew situation at the end where it's like hey like like what did this person end up having to learn about her relationships about the state of the world and it's it's a bad revelation right it's like this is a person who um is an idealist who like had been out in the world who is trying to like who believes in the right sort of like globalist world uh worldly thoughts right about how like oh we can encourage other civilizations and other societies to adopt more nutritional diets. We can undo the damage that uh, colonialism has done to the developing world, to the global South. We can, we can do all of these things, right? Because like our high mindedness will actually win out the day. And in the end, she realizes that she doesn't have any recourse except to 
leverage the uh, really loaded, sexist, regressive uh, power politics that she has over the plumber just the way that he had been doing. And in the process, they sort of, I mean, the, the great tragedy here is they kind of prove each other right about each other, right? Like I, like at one point, he keeps referring to himself as a tradesman and says that like tradesmen are a marginalized class, right? Like he even says like very on the nose, like you talk about oppression against the blacks, like there are places where tradesmen still have to use the tradesman's entrance. And even she's like, what are you talking about? Um, but like later on in the movie, she breaks down and she calls him like a filthy, dirty tradesman. And in that moment, he's almost triumphant, right? It's like, I, I've been waiting to hear that from you. It's like, because finally you fucking admit it. Like I knew you were thinking about me that way. I knew that you thought of me as less than you. And now I've finally gotten you to, Oh my God, she admitted, you know? And that's kind of like what the, the ending here is, right. Is that like, Oh, you're not actually like, like worldly. And it's almost like, I really like that the, the finger isn't pointed at Jill and it's not just pointed at Max and it's not just pointed at quote unquote society. It's kind of pointed at everybody, right? It's like, this is what happens when we fail our, uh, vulnerable people right it's like this is you know in a world where we weren't actually hypocrites and and where brian and jill actually did have the sort of relationship that they did this never would have happened but actually like it doesn't work it doesn't actually operate and in the end our only recourse is to therefore return to these draconian regressive uh hierarchies of power where finally jill just has to leverage her power as a homeowner and a middle-class person over the working class in order to get him out of her life. Like she just has to like, and, and in, in a really like specifically awful way, right. Where like at one point he alludes to like, Oh, I used to be a cat burglar. I have this criminal record, but I'm over it now. I was messed up. Now I'm an actual plumber. She forces him back into that, right. She, she forces him to be seen as a criminal in the eyes Mm -hmm. of society so that he can be removed. Um, which, you know, and like what I really love about this movie is that like, your sympathy, your mileage may vary, but like, I'm pretty sympathetic to her doing that because it's like, I I wouldn't want to have to deal with Max, like psychologically terrorizing me, sexually terrorizing me for months on end either. Like I would probably do whatever it takes. And like, it sucks that she had to do that. Right. And it sucks that like, she has to learn this about herself in the process. And what do we learn from that in the process? Right. Like, you know, the it's, it's really a uh, instructive uh, movie in a lot of really pretty sad, tragic ways. We're all Karen. <laughs> it's true. Hmm. It's impossible yeah. not to be a Karen under capitalism. <laughs> yeah, the final scene. Uh, well, one of the final scenes where she's um, like dressed up nice with Brian, and she's sort of making up stories about the about the watch. I think that is her just deadness during that scene is proof that like, yeah, she maybe she was aware of exact like. That she had to, you, you just use the phrase to, to like learn that about herself, to learn that like she, she will and kind of has to be a Karen to get by is like, if she's accept if she knew that, if she came to that realization in the scene prior where she was like formulating the plan to put it in his car, then she's now fully accepted that. Then like, I think by yeah, the, well, after, and- after the end of the movie, I think she's just like kind of this new person all of a sudden, just a complete sure. snap over the course and of the she movie. she plays she's- it so well, right? It's yes. like, this is like the first scene where she looks like she's comfortable in her own skin. It's like finally she has accepted the position and the power that she has. Like finally she gets it. She's not running away from who she is. It's kind of how it's framed. I don't know that to me she looks or is acting comfortable, but that she like – she kind of does – prior to that, she kind of does have like – 
you could see her in a very waspy environment situation. Like you could see her being costumed, believably costumed and believably staged in a completely different setting and get it. But like over the course of the movie, you see her, you come to see her as like a dedicated bookish, uh, truly like probably a genius. Um, and in that final move, in that final scene, she is like, dressed like the sort of bourgeoisie Karen that she's sort of meant to be. She's finally clad in sort of the armor that she will now wear through probably the rest of her uh, adult life with, with Brian, if she stays, but like there that I think maybe just the reason that I'm having trouble fully bridging the gap between the sympathy that maybe the story wants me to have with the character and sort of like the, uh, uh, where I was left with it is maybe because that change happens so rapidly, like throughout the whole movie, we already discussed, she has so few options, so, so little recourse. And then at the very end, she realizes this is my only recourse. She has tried for so long to deny that she's going to have to ruin this person's life in order to get her out of her, get him out of hers. And then when she finally succumbs to that, it's like, bam, that's it's done. There was no, there was like, there was a, a hot, very quick plateau of the of the, the evidence she needed of the things that were going to happen to justify it and she just bore with it through the you know 60 of the 71 minutes of this movie and then and finally she cracked, the end. right exactly and I, I think that there's something really interesting about the fact that that's what cracking looks like mm. right it's like it's defaulting that's yeah it, it it feels so quick and so natural because it is because like we all know instinctually like oh like like capitalist hierarchies are always oh, man. for me to like yeah. exploit like she's she's just like oh like of course all i have to do is ruin this person well and like he's uh, like all i have to do is is accept the premise of this power dynamic that we have the, and the minute it, she can it's just like it's over i don't mean to run over you but like the fact that what we're bringing up now is making me think of just before that scene but just before the scene where she uh plants the watch and stuff um I forget what prompts her to say it, but she's like, this is my, my house. I'm not like giving up on my house. Yes. Yep. And that's she like defends her, the homestead, dude. She defends yeah. the homestead. She like protects the property, like her personal safety, of course. And you know, that of her husband uh, and her domicile, a thing, but like a factor here, but she, the way that she frames it is like, I'm going to protect my house. I'm going to protect the things that I hold to myself. Yes. She opens up, she even opened up, opens up the door pretty like stone cold, G ass moment to open up the door because she knows that Max is arriving as he always does early in the morning after Brian has left. God, I mean, I, I hadn't really thought about it just because the movie does just like abruptly, like I said, it's a plateau for most of the movie in terms of tension. And then boom, right at the end, that break that she has, the movie just sort of breaks as well. I didn't can think about all of what's building into that and all the pressures that had come to that point and sort of like what that fracture point really means for the story and for the character. Hit it. Well, I don't know how to follow that up. <laughs> so, uh, try try love. Uh, it doesn't need to be at night for us to have technical errors. <laughs> it turns out, um, yeah, no. I mean, I think that like it's it's kind of scary how like trenchant this movie still is, right? I mean, like I think they basically did it already by alluding to this, but like I feel like a modern version of this would just make Max black. Right. And it's just a, it's a movie about it's, how an ostensible liberal ends up calling the cops on black mm -hmm, people. Mm -hmm. And it's like, hey, like when your back's against the wall, it, like those power dynamics sure do be looking good. There's, and like especially when you have no alternative recourse, it's like it turns out that if you are actually afraid and actually aggrieved, you end up 
exploiting the power that you have over people, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's worth noting exactly what Max is doing at the start of this movie, right? Yes, he is precisely. taking out his animus by exploiting a power dynamic that he has control over. And which I think, is, I yeah. think that's where where this movie, I, I watched um, the series Beef, Stephen Yun and Ali Wong. Uh, Netflix oh, I've heard that's good. It's, it's fine. It was not nearly... This movie actually drove home more of the reasons why I didn't love it so much. This movie has like those genuine reasons to be aggrieved on both sides. And in beef, no spoilers, but Ali Wong is uh, quite successful, definitely part of like the upper class, um, married into a very successful artistic uh, family and, you know, a successful businesswoman in her own right. And Stephen Yun is a like, horribly struggling constantly just above the poverty line uh tradesman who can't maintain like significant like a regular work not to like go too deep with the comparison here but i think that it's like it is begging of the audience constantly like have have empathy for the rich woman she's having trouble with her family she's having trouble with her um uh with in her marriage with her extended family uh and mostly it's just like listen rage and anger uh, begets rage and anger and everybody is 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 like uh, everybody has the same 24 hours every day and everybody you know uh, deals with these problems and have have empathy for your fellow person regardless of you know like class and um i might be simplifying significantly but the vibe that i got from that from that whole series and i did end up finishing it was less this where it's like hey look at the reasons everybody has to be aggrieved that are different and the, the fact that they're different actually gives them weight in like a, a directly confrontational situation like the one that we have in in the plumber and more like listen um you both have family problems you both have money problems um you, you have more in common than than you have in in, uh, in, in, in and like the reason that i'm even bringing up beef is because you said like in a modern version max would be uh like a person of color in this in beef which is like follows a very similar structure like a person who is aggrieved and they end up having essentially beef um and of their, they're of different class and gender uh archetypes uh, they're both Asian American, um, but like race is a thing that comes into the movie, excuse me, to the series pretty significantly at times, uh, and, and like touching on the like implications of yeah, a Korean man and uh, I believe I'm not going to speculate as to Ali Wong's race. Another Asian American um, is like the fact that these people are having these problems and are like living under uh, in the same like melting pot America, like California, is material to the plot, but just not in ways that I really loved particularly. I, again, I don't mean to go too deep with the with the comparisons here, but it like I don't know if a if a modern version of this would end up being as like impactful or as like n- not pulling its punches. I so think it would be hard because yeah. inequality is so much worse now. I mean, now it's so much more charged to call the cops on a black person, even than it was in yeah. 1979. Right. Because like, it turns out that like, we should know better. And I think like the point of this movie is that we are, we always did know better. And sometimes it happens anyway. And sometimes it's just because, it's it's like it's it's nobody's fault until it's your fault right and it's like it wasn't jill's fault that this was happening to her it wasn't like jill like max was in the wrong to sort of subject her to these like his animus to like make her the focal point of all of his sort of class-based rage and gender-based rage but um 
they ended up all becoming the worst versions of themselves, right? Because yeah. of the way that those dynamics shook out and because of the options that they had. Um, speaking of junk drawer thoughts, hey, cast Stephen Yoon in the remake of The Plumber. He would do great. Just I'm just saying, like, make him do uh, Lee Chang Dong's burning, his burning character again, but make that character a plumber. <laughs> I, that would be great. I'd I, nail that. <laughs> I, be, I believe in Stephen Yoon. I have no idea if he could pull that character into any other, like it might kill him to do that character again in any other thing. It's a really upsetting character. Yeah. Really, really. Um, I wonder how Haruki Murakami feels about the plumber. I bet he has a lot of thoughts <laughs> about this movie. We should, we should just get an It's hour all exactly him. the same, except everybody's listening to Mozart all the time <laughs> when he brings in his fucking boo box. <laughs> uh, yeah, you have to the drunk drawer. The sound effect is already played for listeners. Um, do you want to kick us off, Cody, with a couple more? Uh, do you have any other junk drawer thoughts for us? Yeah, a couple. When you say the sound effect is already played, did you? Has it been played? Through you, the was magic, it for the magic of uh, post processing. I'll play it again. I'll, 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 play, I'll play it again for for the audience. Um, it is. It goes a little bit like this. But wait, in fact, because they previously heard it. I just closed it. So the sound effect needs to happen again before did, we did it. It didn't Is actually it, for you the first time. It didn't actually. <sighs> Listen, you can't take advantage it's, of my mimosa so brain easy with bullshit to... like this. <laughs> five of them. At, at, uh, at least five. I, I lost count after a while. <laughs> um, a couple thoughts. One very great. That beef uh, has been brought up on this podcast. Uh, the second time um, dating back to Phantom of the Paradise. If, uh, if memory serves. Ooh. Um, I wasn't even on that episode. Um, <laughs> I, I was uh, I was busy that day. Uh, the other, the only other thing I have uh, around this is not um, a bit for our next segment, but around twenty six fifty, there was Max had a line somewhere uh, or something about um, society screwed it up, and then the P sound of up, he like blasted wind such that um jill's hair went like flying backwards as if a fan was blowing i, noticed that. I, I, I watched it a couple times just to make absolutely certain that i, I wasn't losing my mind but yeah he's society screwed it up and it, and it just whoosh, uh i have that I same know. effect on women when i talk about how society screwed up oh no um that is all i had what a weird note to end on. Harry, what other sicko junk drawer thoughts do you have? Well, I thank you, Cody. Um, all of Max's explanations of plumbing are so goddamn funny in this. Like, the first day when he comes in and he's like, your pipes are too damn small. That's your problem. We got to get some bigger <laughs> pipes in there. It's like, what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? <laughs> nah, he's he's like, right. He's like, you look up there, right right above your bathroom. You got 5,000 gallons of water up there. It's just like, all right, Max. Like, And everything he does just makes no fucking sense. Like, I, We talked about it a little bit off mic, but like, legitimately one of the funniest things is the first thing he does when he's in the bathroom is he paints or he uh, markers a little black X on the wall. And then literally like half a second, same shot after like markering it he bashes through the marker <laughs> with his hammer it's so funny it's so unnecessary and i just like i, I love that like he's so um impish is a good word because he's so blatant right from the very beginning really where, like, he's in there like fucking singing he's taking showers at one point he brings his guitar in and he's like oh i always i always uh try out the old guitar in a new bathroom for like the acoustics presumably and it's just like all right guy like you fucking wild man <laughs> It's so funny and so uh, gross at the same time, and I really love that. 
I'm sorry, I thought I had my microphone on. Uh, it's uh, I'm only three mimosas deep, but um, I'm catching up to Cody. Hit it. Uh, we, it's a testament to Ivor Kuntz or Ivar Kuntz, the actor who plays Max, um, that like he can do these really shitheaded things as part of a really like pretty evil character and still just get consistent lat and like I'm on his I'm. I'm with that guy at that moment type thing. It's earlier on when it's less uh, intimidating, more annoying that he brings his boombox to to the uh, bathroom. And instead of like singing along to the music, which is just generic seventies sounding rock, he's just like, woo. And hoo hoo. Yeah. Like exclaiming like a video game character, like an he's NPC. Like, uh, yeah. He, he's like Austin powers that he's like, Ooh, baby. Yeah. <laughs> just like, to himself in in the in the bathroom i i i don't know so a lot of those mannerisms that just keep coming back are like is he doing this as a performance to try and like freak her out to try and whatever or or is he does he truly like do this on the job regularly i was quite pleased with that what are my drink or thoughts is just it's annoyingly charming like you don't want clearly you don't want to like this character but through the uh, his mannerisms alone i find it very hard to not at least laugh at the antics occasionally see um, this is how the movie gets you dude this, this is, is i empathize literally brian right now i empathized with the devil sympathy um my other thing is there's a uh, bit when um uh brian has his colleagues over including some men uh, traveling, I believe, from Africa and from the or, excuse me from from India, um, and so it's a multicultural little melting pot at their dinner table. And Brian has to go help one of them in the bathroom. And what she's what uh, Jill is left with is, I believe, just a white colleague who's been sort of like playing a interpreter, so to speak, not literally. Um, and uh, I think his name is Doctor Mutu, if I remember correctly, uh, the gentleman from Africa. And uh, and she turns to the white guy whose name I don't even remember, and she says like, "Where where do you do you, do you go skiing where you are?" And he's like, "Oh, in Switzerland." Switzerland, I think. Uh, and he's like, you know, we don't get as much time to. And then the guy from Africa speaks up and he's like, uh, I ski in Colorado. <laughs> Just like a, a, a new, that bit where it's like a it's lot of, so a lot good, of movies where, where it's like, a, you know, a, a, some white character asking, uh, you know, a, a, a second generation immigrant uh, character who asks, asking like, you know, uh, where are you from or where are your people from? And they're like, I, I live in Connecticut. And it's like, oh, where, where was your grandparents? They lived in Massachusetts. <laughs> it's just like that bit. But 40 years before I ever heard it anywhere else is such a funny concept to me that they just drop it in this scene and nowhere else. I go skiing in Colorado. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite moments in, in the entire movie, it's it's one of the like most dastardly, unsubtle, hilarious bits where like um, the hair ointment that Brian uses to, to help his uh, hair come back because it's thinning out keeps coming up and like Max just keeps bringing it up. He, he's like, I'm lucky. I got I got myself a nice uh, nice quaff. And, and then he's like, you know, it's all about hormones. And he, he, he literally he says like, oh, I, this was almost my uh, quote at the top. He's like, I heard that the intellectual types, uh, they lose their hair a lot. And so he's just like, <laughs> he's intimating that like intellectuals are cucks and like have low T <laughs> and that's why they lose their fucking hair. And it, it's just like this some wild hilarious dumb shit and it's just so funny the way that he like is like so clearly just saying out of pocket shit and it's just like yeah. she has to just be like uh-huh uh-huh well i tell him not to worry about it it's it's just so <laughs> with, absurd with complete impunity i man i'll probably end up putting this movie on at least for if not for somebody else then maybe just to watch it again myself uh 
Well, if you've had a chance to watch um, The Plumber, you should check out more Peter Weir movies. We're going to be covering more on this podcast. Uh, just as a small plug for the Peter Weir series at the trial end, uh, in September Wait, are we? 2023. Is that huh? true? Oh, I, yeah, it is true. We'll it's probably cover a few more. Stay tuned. Ooh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Um, we have a couple more segments to this podcast. Uh, I, I would like to introduce – well, first off, I'd like to – reclose the drunk drawer uh and open up the drawer uh i don't really have like a space in like a place in space that that befits a, a good grief give me the gif um type stuff so i'll just say that good grief give me a gif is the name of our grief fits everywhere jason not to wow. interrupt jesus christ cody um where we ask, I, I ask the the folks and including myself, what image they want to see, moving image they want to see with the episode as it goes out on Twitter. Always put out a GIF, usually make them ourselves. And I want to know what these folks think we should put out as the episode GIF. Um, I think I tossed to Cody the first last time. So uh, I apologize if I'm wrong. I'll toss to Harry this time for uh, his imagery in Good Grief, Give Me a GIF. Yeah, I think the boil over moment where the, the plumbing really all hell breaks loose in the bathroom and like black water comes streaming out of every single like uh like plug in the uh room is really good and and they're both freaking out that's a really good one um i do love when when max is uh serenading um a very upset looking jill and keeps on like aggressively blasting that bob dylan harmonica in in between his his lyrics and, and she's just literally like watching him in disbelief as he sits in this little like plumber's throne that he's constructed for himself in their bathroom just strumming away on the old guitar and singing his song um that would be a really funny one too i think those are my two i think I agree. Uh, what an idea for staging and directing. Peter Weir wrote and directed this, which means he must have thought of a man sitting on that plumber's throne playing a guitar at some point in the making of this movie. Do not know how you come up with that or how you uh, make it happen in real life, but a master of his craft. Um, as is Cody, uh, who's going to be giving me some GIF ideas for our episode. Oh, I don't know about all that, but I've got a couple ideas. Uh, if I'm reading my handwriting correctly, 3925 is whereabouts my first suggestion pops in. It's when uh, um, she, uh, Jill, starts to kind of take a stand, and it's one of the subsequent times when Max comes to her place, and he's, like, tapping on the window. It's a shot where she's, like, trying to stay busy at her desk, and he, like, passes behind the window behind her and there's a curtain there's like a visible shadow that just kind of moves over the course of you know stretch of like 20 seconds or whatever where he's like tapping and eventually moving past like and during the day daytime too like kind of one of those like horror movie type images that like has like is undercut by a lot of stuff including humor um i like that shot a lot uh, also, around forty nine fifteen, I, I think that's when he's writing the lyrics for his um, bathroom classic sonnet, uh, where he goes, "I'm me, babe," and then he's writing in "I'm free, babe." Uh, just re- really, really good. Also, I'm, I'm a I'm a visual learning type of person, and seeing the words written out uh, made it all the better for me when he started playing that stuff uh, shortly thereafter. Um, so yeah, I don't know, sh- you know, shout out to musicians and artists and plumbers everywhere. Where uh, that good grief shout out is for you, Jason. Wh- what did you think about the the imagery in this movie? I'm so glad you asked because one of mine aligns with one of yours, Cody. Um, the uh, 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 I'm sorry, the I'm me, babe. Uh, tile. Um, I I saw him write I'm me, babe, and I thought that's the gif. 
And then I saw him write, I'm free, babe. And I thought that's the gif. And then I heard him sing the I'm me, babe song. And I'm like, that's the ending song. Just a fount of every blessing that scene. Um, uh, that again was where Cody indicated it was during a movie, uh, early on in the movie. Uh, I think it's when Max is first just about to ascend the elevator. We just get a shot of like his midriff, like basically his ass and crotch in right old ripped jeans as the elevator door starts to open. And it's just, uh, again, very ominous, very horror movie style, but just held a little bit longer than normally you would see. And he's just bopping around. Gives a really good indication of the character. Ass, I think. Too. He's, he's really rocking those, uh, bell bottom jeans. You said it, Al. <laughs> Uh, there's when Al Pacino said that. Sorry, remember, please continue. That's Maybe. Vincent Hanna to you, Cody. Thank you. Oh, we, detective Hanna. Vincent Hanna. Uh, there's also a scene it, or a shot. It reminded me of um, uh, uh, After Hours, where he walks into their bathroom for the first time and he looks toward like one part of the wall, and there's like this tantric sex illustration uh, from un- some other culture on their wall, and he like looks at it and gives the yuck face as, yeah, well, like, without and her it's seeing. It's so funny too because he's whistling at the, and then he just gives a particularly pointed little whistle when he sees <laughs> that as like part of the same song that he's whistling. It's so fucking good, really, really good. Um, and then I mentioned the low angle of her walking toward the bathroom where you're seeing like the ceiling above her and sort of like her from below her chin uh, and her like sort of darting eyes before she gets to the bathroom where he's crawling in through the ceiling. Great foreshadowing in retrospect that like they're showing just constantly the ceiling above her because you're trying to follow the noise that she started to hear. I think it's right after the shot you're talking about, Cody, where he can't get her attention. He's knocking on the window and she's listening to her research either purposely or like accidentally ignoring him. And then she finds him in the bathroom uh, digging through the ceiling, which, again, <laughs> more of a comedic moment, I think, in effect than it might have been intended. I, I found myself really giggling when I just see his legs dangling through the ceiling. Really bizarre, absurd shit. Um, but that's that shot actually was like rather tense uh, leading up to it. So I nominate that as one of the gifts. Um, you might have noticed I also will take uh, the initiative to just throw a new gif in there. I found that, um, that to, just to make winners of us all. Uh, so if in my scrubbing through the video files uh, of this movie, I find something that is also particularly whatever, maybe we end up with a surprise fun gif. Um, it's the creator's privilege. That is the creator's privilege. And they all go out anyway, um, except for Mad Max and maybe one or two others. Uh, Natalie uh, Marlin, fr- friend of the pod, former guest, um, still holds it over my head that I have not made the guess from Mad Max. I think Max it would be a pretty good bit movies. to just never do just the gifs of the episodes that she's on. <laughs> I literally have a reminder on my phone uh, that is just Mad Max gifs. And the last time I clicked it was in April. It is just hiding there right above everything else. Um, but Maybe someday, maybe someday. Uh, I know Natalie appreciates a good bit, and maybe this is maybe this is mine. Uh, thank you so much, y'all. That has been good grief. Give me a gift. Uh, you will have gifts. Uh, gifts aplenty will be had by us. But we have a final segment. Uh, again, um, we sure fam- do. Famous last. I'm words. so glad it's back. This is a, a second week a, in a row. Mm, it's sweet, mm. sweet sucker. We are again. We are again beautifully. <laughs> Uh, spoiled by it's the a sweet again. sweet sucker, as <laughs> as one Jason might say. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ! I need Harry's help making yes, this happen. Indeed, folks, this is the segment we like to call <gasps> Cody's Noties. Yeah, fellas, I'm so embarrassed. That intro has left me flushed uh with peter weir being an australian filmmaker uh, i figured we had to dig a little deeper into his uh his motherland through a little something i like to call maybe the trilove ate your baby 
uh, everything Seinfeld coming full circle this episode. Uh, specifically, we're going to be hitting on films that had part or all of their productions take place in Australia. I will present each prompt, excuse me, one at a time for the order. We'll just do Jason then Harry for our purposes this week. You get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer. Uh, and the person with the most points at the end will win. You kind of know the drill. Uh, as always, trivia mafia rules apply here. Use your noodles, not your Googles. Let's jump in uh, for number one. We're going to start with the most popular film uh, through Letterboxd metrics uh, ever produced in Australia, and that's Speak of the Devil, Mad Max Fury Road. How tall is director George Miller, Harry? Oh, man. I, I want George Miller to be so fucking tall, dude. <laughs> he, he probably isn't, but I just want him to be like a towering fucking presence. I'm going to go with uh, 6'2". Six two, and I realize I said uh, Jason and then Harry, and then asked for Harry's first. Um, so maybe I'll just fucking I don't know. I'm just gonna shoot wildly. Um, you said six two, Harry. Uh, as I'm getting calibrated here, perfect. Uh, and then Jason, what's what's your guess here? My guess, I I think he's I think he's a small man with a who casts a big shadow. I'm gonna say he's five ten. I mean, Jeez. small man. Sure. Uh, scare quotes. You didn't see him, listener, um, but there were some scare quotes in there. Uh, 510 is Jason's guess. Going off a few sources on the internet, uh, Mr. Miller is allegedly five feet, seven inches yes. tall. Um, so small man cast a, a mighty big shadow, uh, a mighty um, uh, profitable shadow, I might add. Uh, so Jason gets the point there. Uh, also profitable for Jason as we move to question number two next up we have 2014's the lego movie which was a collaboration between various australia u.s and denmark production companies question for you what is the total net worth of the lego brand the total net worth of the lego brand we'll go to jason first for this one um you said it yeah i know 7.3 billion dollars Seven point three billion doll hairs got you locked in, and over to Harry. What do you think is the case for Lego's uh, monetary worth? Man, uh, I'm going to go with three billion, but I'm not super confident. Three billion, gotcha. Got you locked in. The most recent figure I could find was from the end of uh, 2022, which listed Lego as having a total worth of 11.8 billion dollars. Jesus Christ, that's that's more than I make. That's in wild, a month. dude. Yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, bonkers. Um, but also is bonkers is the fact uh, that the scoreboard currently reads two zero in favor of Jason. Still very much pretty bonkers. anybody's game here. Yeah, um, ostensibly bonkers, the Jason Daphne story. Uh, for number three, we've got Moulin Rouge with an exclamation point. Moulin Rouge, uh, voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir? Um, that's actually poorly translated French and not Australian. Fun fact, a Moulin Rouge competed for the Palme d'Or at the 2001 uh, Cannes Film Festival. Uh, my question for you is this, which one of the following previous Trial of Episode movies did not compete for the Palme d'Or at the 2001 Cannes Film Festival. I'm going to give you three options here. We have Millennium uh, excuse, take Millennium Mambo. There we go. The Man Who Wasn't There and Yee Yee. Which one of those did not compete for the Palme d'Or in 2001 at the Cannes Film Festival? We'll go to Harry first for this one. I think I'm going to go with Yee Yee. 
All right, Harry's going to go with Yi Yi. Got you locked in. And Jason, are you going to attempt to cover the spread? Are you going to latch on to Harry's answer? What do you think? You know, I was going to go Yi Yi because it felt like, I don't know. It felt like like a like a gimme. The man who wasn't there feels like a gimme, and I think I'm going to take E. I'm, I'm going to say the man who wasn't there. I I'm not confident about that, but help cover the spread. I think this is a classic Cody trick question, but I please think, proceed. Yeah, Cody. I know. I mean, every question by nature of uh, having uh, either a correct answer or more uh, viewable correct answer than other answers is a trick question, whether it's intended or not. Really something to think about. These films, uh, it should be noted, all competed for the Palm d'Or, but uh, Yee Yee competed at the 2000, 2000. Festival, not, yeah, yeah, not yeah. the 2001 Festival. God damn it. Yeah, pretty straightforward question, all things considered. Uh, but that puts Harry on the board. Uh, he still trails Jason uh, two to one as we head into our final two questions here. Uh, for question four, our next Australian produced film is uh, Pod Favorite Muriel's Wedding, starring Tony Collette hey. as the titular Muriel. Shout outs. Uh, in American dollars, what is the average cost of putting on a wedding in Australia, Jason? Um, 12,000 US, you said US dollars? Yep. 12,000 US dollars. 12,000 US dollars. All right, got it noted down here. And Harry, what do you think about how, this? Yeah, go ahead. How could you possibly average something like that? Life uh, 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 finds a way. <laughs> okay. Um, man, I don't know. I'm going to go with uh, 16,000 USD. 16,000 USD's nuts. Uh, in a survey by the publication Easy Weddings, uh, the survey which was comprised of 3,500 couples married from 2020 to 2022, hashtag life finds a way, the average spend for an Australian wedding was 34,715 uh, in Australian oh, dollars, translated my. to American dollars. Oh. That comes out to $22,163. Uh, so Harry Christ. is still closest there. Uh, point Harry Weddings. Wow. What an institution. Um, what an industry. What a sport is the noties as uh, we head into the final question. Tied up 2-2. Two, two, uh, two apiece. Really riveting stuff. I imagine our listeners are on the edge of the, uh, their seats. I know I am as we head into the final question in which I will invoke a goofy movie, which uh, appears to have had some production assistance uh, from Disney's Australian branch. So, uh, so there's that. Uh, goofy and Max, fun fact, are dogs, and uh, another kind of dog native to Australia is the dingo, bringing it full circle yet again here this week. My question you for connect. you, yeah, yeah, I, I connected the dots. Uh, my question for you, fine fellas, what is the average weight? of the wild dingo. And because we're in the U S as of this recording, I will accept your answer in pounds. So what is the average weight of the wild dingo? We'll go to Harry first. Going to go with 60 pounds, Cody. Harry is going with 60 pounds. And Jason, what do you think? I'm going to say 45 it's pretty uh, big pounds. Guess. Yeah. 45 pounds. All righty um thank you for your guesses just to get ahead of this i'll say thank you and mm, newsflash maybe the trial of your baby uh, averaging the marginal difference between males and females the average wild dingo is expected to weigh 33 and a half pounds jason had I the closer guessed 
uh, guess. Uh, he's not the average guest. He did get the correct guess uh, being closest. Um, two to three is the score there from Harry to Jason, respectively. Um, thank you again. The POP is Jason's. Feel free to, <sighs> I'm, to speak I'm just your piece. one man. I'm just one man um, with a with a wealth of trivia knowledge uh, at my disposal. Uh, this isn't a bad. Actually, that's probably one of the better. It got Australian New Zealand. Accents. I think it started. It started bad. a little dire, and you worked up into it. So congrats. That was <laughs> Listen, pretty good. You could plot the performance of that on a on a graph, and it would be it would look like a big J was my intent. Start off how, how, uh, middling, and then it scoops down, and then it goes way back up. I'll polish it before our next episode. Thank you so much, Cody, for ending our episodes on such a wonderful, lighthearted, fun note every time. Sorry for ruining it nearly every time uh, when it, that I get the pop-up platform. It's not often, uh, I promise. I'll keep it that way. Um, thank you so much, listener, for uh, joining again for another episode of Try Love. Check out this movie in the show notes. Check out this movie wherever it is currently streaming when you're listening. And check out the Trilon at trilon.org. Get tickets uh, to showings and other cool ways and merch to support the Trilon. There's a cool library of movies. There's a membership club. There are secret screenings and uh, sort of, I, I want to say ex- exclusive. I, I know that they put up some stuff for specifically uh, uh, trial and club members. Uh, some of those things have uh, not not to show my ass too much, but we've we've gotten a little the rules bent uh, occasionally uh, on occasion for for fun stuff for fun stuff. Um, also, uh, I'm not sure um uh, if you want to rent out the trial on. I'm just trying to sell the horror out the trial as much as possible. Go to trialon.org. Uh, they're really cool people, and it's a really fun place to be. So check out movies there. Um, it's really the only thing you can super do at there is is movies. Um, I mean, you can have pizza on the patio if you want. You can bring your dog by for yeah. It's a fucking movie theater. What, what else do you want them to you know, do? No, it's great. It's great. I mean, nothing, nothing against them. I mean, I'm not. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, check us out on Trilo- at Trilove Podcast on Twitter. Check me out if you want to. I mean, not not promising anything. On Twitter at uh, Trilove, excuse me, at Jason. I'm not at Jason anywhere. At Nintendoofus, uh, I now have, I'm not exactly sure what my at is, but a friend gave me an invite to Blue Sky. I'm not going to pro- plug that on here, uh-huh. but just in case you're in the know, I don't know. Go there. The app logo is super dumb and annoying. Um, so I'll be on Twitter until that place uh, dies. Check me out. Wow. Uh, if anybody listening has a blue sky invite, uh, hit me up. Also check Jason out and the ass, which he said he wasn't going to show, but he showed that entire time on webcam as he was plugging various things. Um, so there's a fine image for your nice, noggins i've been cody narvis and you can find me as of yet still on twitter at cody underscore bh what i found really creative about that was the way that he flapped the cheeks in and out to simulate uh the butthole talking um it well he was promoting that and the little face he drew on it um just going the extra distance that's why he's a super producer uh sorry to dingoes um i thought you were bigger than you were on the sort of coyote to dire wolf spectrum which is how i always think about those things um i also kind of thought that they were like similar in size to hyenas but i'm now realizing i there's no empirical evidence for that it was just an association i drew in my mind so sorry to hyenas and dingoes um i'll endeavor to do better next time um until then you can find me on twitter at punish take i've been harry megan signing out uh i'm gonna call an audible and not do an australian accent for this um because i don't think i can talk what jason did uh listen mimosa brain me cannot rationalize (laughs) what that might sound like um so has to be done all right matter of fact you better let me get on with it spend all day gossiping i'll never get the job done what a saving 
Don't get me wrong, babe. I've seen the hard roads that calling me. Cause I'm me, babe. Oh, yes, I am. I'm just me, babe. Oh, don't you turn your back on me, babe. I see you standing in the way. Then you turn your back on me. So don't you, don't you turn your back on me, cause I, I've been to Babylon and I, I've seen the Mercury wings flying high. Uh, Jason, did you say something? Can you say something? Can you hear us? Jason, can you? Jason? Oh, Jason? I don't think Jason can Jason? hear us. Jason? 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 Shh, paging Dr. Daphnis. Jason, 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 Jason. Sung to the tune of Linda, Linda, Linda. Jason, Jason, Jason. Jason, oh, wow. Jason, Jason. He can't hear us either. Oh, wow.